Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, a new set of laws, the laws of Malve, Bilova, lending and borrowing, lenders and borrowers. And this is a very basic central law in Torah, complex. The next 27 chapters will deal with this. We touched upon a lot of this earlier when we touched upon the laws of interest-bearing loans and borrowings and so on, but this is the mother load. Yesh in the general category of this section, there are Shtei Mesri Mitzvahs, 12 of the 613 Mitzvahs. Arba, four of them are Mitzvahs Ase, positive commandments, Ushmeinah, and eight of them are Mitzvahs Leis Ase, negative commandments, Vizehu, Proton, and these are the details of these commandments. So here we go through simply a list. Aleph, Lahalveis, Leoni, Vamoch, to lend to poor and destitute people. And as we will learn, the mitzvah, is only, is, the mitzvah is also to lend money to wealthy people when they need it. You know, wealthy people need their loans too. But the Torah uses the language of lend poor people, so he brings down this as a mitzvah to lend money when people need it. But in general, gemilus chesed, bein la'aniyim, bein la'ashirim, the mitzvah to lend money to one's fellow applies to poor people as well as to wealthy people. Sometimes they need cash flow to put together a tremendous deal. Or what have you. Beis, shaloi Commandment number two is a tough one. You lend the guy money, you did a good thing, you believe he's going to pay you back. And then he says, I'm sorry, I don't have. As they used to say in Newark when I was a kid, do me something. So you're not allowed to press him. You're not allowed to harass him. You're not allowed to come to him day after day and say, no, that's not good. Gimel, it is okay, Liga is to press, an idolater. And again, my father of blessed memory explained this whole mitzvah, this whole dichotomy to me many times in a very beautiful way. This whole business of lending money to one's fellow Jew without charging interest, of making loans available, of not pressing him to collect when he doesn't have, and yet permitting one to do all of those things with an idolater or even a non-Jew, what is the meaning? Is this uh, discriminatory? And again, to use my father's simple explanation, which I heard from him so many times in his classes, the normal activity of people is to make money with their money. The normal activity of people is to charge interest. The normal activity of people is to collect debts. It's normal. What's not normal is the Torah tells you to treat every single one of your fellow Jews as if he was your brother. So that when it comes to Jews, there's a special family law. We are family. And this applies to every single fellow Jew. That's what's unusual. But the norm is to do what people do with money. To hold on to it, to increase it, to make money. So the way we treat the entire world is normal. That's the way the world treats itself. There's an exception to this rule, and that is that we have to go above and beyond the call of duty and treat every one of our fellow Jews as if he was our biological brother. And that's a tough one. Back to this list here. Therefore, it is okay to press an idolater for a return of loan because he's not your brother. He's just a regular person. We will see as we go on. There are two appropriate times to take collateral. One is at the origin of the debt. The other is at the point where the debt goes bad. When the debt goes bad, you say, I know you can't return my money to me, but can you at least give me collateral? And there are laws governing the taking of collateral at both states as well. You can't forcibly take a team of strong men, walk into the guy's house, and walk out with his laptop as collateral. Not so simple. Furthermore, as we will learn, to return the collateral to the person when he needs it, for example, as we will learn, if you take his pajamas as collateral, that's fine. But if he only has one pair of pajamas, you have to return it every night when he needs it. That's a full-time job, by the way. Not to be late with the delivery of the collateral when he needs it. You know, today, people have more than one pair of pajamas. They have more than one pair of work clothing. But once upon a time, one pair of pajamas was luxurious. One pair of work clothing was enough. You take the guy's work clothes, make sure he doesn't wait for you until you deliver the clothes in the morning. Otherwise, he's not going to go to work. Not to forcibly take collateral from a widow to give extra space to a widow because she's a widow. Not to take as collateral tools, utensils that the guy needs to make a living from, for example. And the present company excluded, of course. If the guy's a dentist, you don't take his drill or his laughing gas. Because if you take the drill and the laughing gas of a dentist, how's he going to make a living? Or his magazines. You know, a dentist is nothing without magazines in the waiting room. So you can't take any of these tools. The same goes for a carpenter and a painter and a rabbi and so on. Next, nine, that a lender should not lend his fellow Jew charging interest. We did touch upon the whole rabbinic ordinance of investment lending called Hefter Iska, the permissibility of an investment. But here we're talking about lending a needy person. Interest is not permissible. So you can't make loans with interest. You can't borrow money with interest. You can't be an agent hooking up the lender and the borrower where they are Jews who will pay and charge each other interest. You can't act as a witness between them. You can't be the one who creates the document, draws up the document. You can't be a guarantor. That's all part of 11, 12. 
Lilwais, it is acceptable to borrow. Mino Ebit Shechavim from a non-Jew. Ola Halvis Way, and to lend him the Rebus charging of paying interest. That's the norm. Obeyer Mitzvah Seilu, the explanation of these mitzvahs, but Rakhadeilu, the upcoming chapters, 27 chapters. As the Rambam always does, he builds a building. In chapter 1, he lays down the ABC, basic fundamental building blocks of the mitzvahs of lending and borrowing money, pertaining to lending and borrowing money. Aleph 1, mitzvahs I say, it is a positive commandment within the Torah, the halves to lend la'aniya Yisrael, to the poor people within the Jewish people. As pointed out earlier, there is a mitzvah even to lend to wealthy people under certain circumstances, but the Torah language is poor people. Shanamar, as the verse says in Mishpatim, in Kesef, palves, ami, if money, you shall lend my nation, my people, eseoni, imach, the poor man with you. Yochel Rishus, I would think that it's permission. The Torah says, if you want to, if somebody's poor, he needs money, you can lend him. No, Talmud Lamer, therefore the verse says, you shall certainly make a loan available to him. It's a great mitzvah to lend money to people who need. Mitzvah zu, this mitzvah, it is said that the mitzvah of making loans available, interest-free loans, is a greater mitzvah than giving charity. El Haoni, Hashayo to the poor man who asks. Why? Because when the poor man is asking for charity, he's already in deep trouble. Because the guy already needs to ask. But the fellow who's looking for a loan, he can still save himself with this available additional cash flow. So he didn't reach this level where he's considered poor. He's at that brink. And perhaps your loan will enable him to continue to be self-sufficient. It's called in our modern world, cash flow. You need cash flow. And the Torah was very meticulous, very severe. To someone who will withhold and refuse to make a loan to a poor man. As it says in the Torah, in that whole section, which we read on Yisker days, your eyes will be negative. You'll have a bad eye, looking down upon your brother, the poor man, and you'll say, why should I lend you money? I might lose it. The glamour, etc. So therefore, mitzvah number one, paragraph one is, make money available to poor people who need it. It's a mitzvah that could be argued as greater than giving charity. On the other hand, if you made the loan, and unfortunately the guy doesn't have it, anybody who presses and harasses the poor man, and the fellow knows, he doesn't have the money to return. And we're soon going to learn all the permissible activity which the Torah permits to collect debts. Collecting debts is a serious responsibility. You can't just let the guy go. Otherwise, the whole business of lending and borrowing money is going to stop. People need to responsibly borrow money. They need to responsibly pay back money. So it's not so simple. And we're going to learn in this chapter the beginnings of this lack of simplicity. But if he happens to know for a fact that the guy is as poor as a synagogue mouse, that's the first cousin to a church mouse, and he just doesn't have he does transgress a negative commandment. And as it says, do not be someone who presses. Don't act as a debt collector, a bill collector. Mitzvah, I say... Lingais, however, it is a positive, a positive commandment which permits one to press as I an idolater, or the hotzer to make him uncomfortable. This mitzvah is a mitzvah only for family. Shenamar, as it says, it is acceptable to press the stranger, meaning not family. From tradition we have learned, Shazu mitzvah say that in fact it's a positive commandment. You have an obligation to collect your money. And therefore, debt collection is fine, just not from your brother. You have to be extra, extra sensitive to your brother. Furthermore, Gimbal also law the Mahadis is forbidden for a person to show himself to his creditor, if he knows the guy doesn't have. I feel a lot of the fun of even to pass by him. You should go across the street when you see the guy coming. You don't want to make him uncomfortable. Shall I not to scare him? not to embarrass him? even though he doesn't demand it just to show himself. Certainly it is forbidden to show himself to him. If he's going to demand the money when he knows he doesn't have. By the way, many of you know that in our world, it is so clearly understood, this whole idea of borrowing money and lending money with interest and what it does and the dangers and the collections. You look at the American dream, people who borrow money from credit cards, people who spend Money on credit cards, people who get into serious credit card debt, who doesn't? It's the American way. And then they end up paying not 6%, but 30% and more on the credit cards. And then it becomes impossible. And then they go to a credit counselor or they go to one of these magical companies who says, I'm going to save you from your credit card debt. And then they don't save them so quickly. And then they have court cases and judgments and they garnish wages and they make you mishiga and so on. And so it's, a very, it's not for naught that the Torah refers to this as the big bite. It bites you and bites you and bites you and doesn't let you survive. So that interest bearing loans, they just self-generate and self-multiply and they consume you and they consume themselves and before you know it the creditors are calling during dinner and during breakfast and during lunch and so on and so forth we have a greater appreciation of the laws which the Torah gives to a Jew concerning his or her fellow Jew you are family stop treating people like strangers 
That's the soul of this law. Just as it's forbidden to demand when someone doesn't have them and you know they don't have. It is forbidden, by the way, for the borrower. You can't just borrow money and say, I'm sorry, I'm not repaying you. It's a tremendous responsibility to pay back your debts. To withhold someone else's money should be all day that he has. Go tell him, come tomorrow. is an expression taken from King Solomon. You tell the guy tomorrow, next week, and so on. It's called Hakim Achaynik. Very difficult to translate Hakim Achaynik. The best I can do is banging a tea kettle. The who she yeshloi, provided that he has. Shenemar, as it says, this is that famous verse in Mishli in Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 28. Do not tell your colleague, go and return tomorrow, manana. You figure, hey, I owe the money, it's in my hands. So that being a borrower is a tremendous responsibility. It is also forbidden for a borrower, to take a loan, and to extend it, to spend it, without need, just because it's somebody else's money. The Torah mandates that we treat somebody else's money like we treat our own money and better. You can't just borrow money and go on a cruise and say, I'm really sorry, those Greek islands were wonderful, but I don't have. Just to waste money. Actually, until the lender will not have where to collect from. And we're soon going to learn about where we can collect from and where we can't collect from. Not so simple. Even though the lender is a very wealthy man. He's a, what we used to call when we were kids, a gazillionaire. He has gazillions of dollars. So my $10,000 is not going to hurt him. That's not an argument. It's his money and it's not your money. Somebody who borrows money when he doesn't need it and doesn't repay it and he just has a good time. He, he, he buys a year ticket to Disneyland. Roshavu, this is considered a wicked person. As it says, a wicked man borrows and doesn't repay God-fearing people, when they borrow, they repay. There's a, a world we live in, it's called, you get into trouble, you restructure your debt. The first thing you tell everybody is, I can't pay you. Have a good day. And then, you go on vacation, and then you work it out. It's not so simple. Owing someone money is a tremendous responsibility. Your friend's money, your fellow's money should be as dear to you as your own money. So, on the one hand, we have a commandment to the person who has money. Lend it, help people, make it available. Don't press people when they don't have. Don't even show yourself to them. Don't be a vicious debt collector. On the other hand, we have a commandment. Don't borrow money when you don't need it. When you borrow it, repay it and be responsible and be God-fearing and so on and so forth. It's a very fine line. Now, the question is, just because somebody lends someone money, is the money lost? Because the guy says he doesn't have it. Absolutely not. You go and you use the court system, the debt-in system, the Jewish court system to collect. When the lender demands his loan back, even though the lender is wealthy. In Jewish law, it makes no difference in litigation whether someone is wealthy or poor. Litigation is, like uh, they used to say about Superman, truth, justice, and the American way, that's litigation. It makes no difference whether the litigator is poor or rich, he's a gazillionaire or a schnorrer. Law is law. Even though he's wealthy, and the borrower is a harassed schlepper, and he's trying to bring money into Peter's family. He's trying to make a living. There is a general rule, and these are the words. We do not have compassion in the system of justice. Justice is just. Outside of justice, there has to be compassion. But in the system of justice, there is no compassion. We collect the debt. We from any movable objects that the borrower might have. Because when you borrow money, it's your responsibility to repay it. You can't have laptop computers and fancy cars and even simple cars and all kinds of stuff and gold and silver and pearls and diamonds. Say, I leave me alone. This is, this is my wife's jewelry. What are you doing? It's not so simple. You can't borrow someone else's money and have everything you own being exempt from collection. And of course, in today's laws, there are laws that say what is exempt and what is not exempt and what can be collected and what cannot be collected. What if the movable objects alone are not sufficient? They go to the real estate as well. Real estate is not exempt. Real estate is also leaned to lenders. After they go to court and they issue a ban of excommunication. For anyone who has movable objects, owes money and is hiding it. It's very easy to hide movable objects. You tell somebody, do me a favor, put this in your house. In case the courts come and search my house. Or anybody who knows about movable objects, does not bring them to court because when the court sends a subpoena. And the court says, bring all your movable objects. We're going to see what your lender should get. You have to bring all your movable objects. You can't give all your cousins some of your movable objects to hold. It doesn't work that way. It's a violation of Torah law. And you can collect this debt from any real estate that the borrower has. Now, as we have learned, and as we are learning, and as we will learn, we'll learn there's a whole system of liens and real estate in Jewish law. So the question is, what if I have real estate, but it's liens? Well, today, liens are different. Today, there's a title search, and the title search will hopefully show every lien. 
But back then, there was no title company. Even in Chicago, they had no title company. So how did anybody know what's leaned and what's not leaned? Well, you know, they heard about it. Where did they hear about it? In shul, during Shalash So it was very vague. So he says, Even the guy might say, you know, I have this piece of property. But you know, I'm married. And my wife's ktuba leans all my real estate. So I don't really have any available real estate. Or I have a guy that left me money before you did. So certainly lean to him. Shekodam, who came first, Gavin Lozat, makes no difference. Those, the wife, the other lender, they're not collecting now. They're not litigating. I'm litigating. I come first. If they want to litigate and show that their lien came first, let them do that when they go to court. In Yavi if the first lien holder will come, the Yitrek and will try and collect from the second lien holder, that's fine. Yitrek, that's why we have a court system. But don't tell me I can't touch real estate because I have a wife or because I have a debt. Because in that case, I'll never be able to lien any real estate. Torn Aleva, what if the borrower argues and says, that these movable objects are the which I have? Hey, don't you see all these things in my house? But let me tell you something, they're not mine. Ella Picotenheim, they were put in my house for safekeeping. Or I lent to them, I showed them, or I borrowed them. Ain't shaming like we don't listen to his claim. That's unsupported. Either he brings support for the claim, proof. He brings a rental agreement. He brings a note talking about an article given to him for safekeeping. Or the lender could collect what he has. And if the guy argues it's not his, well, let them litigate it. So the system, as we see, is trying to cut out any gains. Hey, five. On the other hand, a lender may not collect from the garments that the borrower's wife and children have. Why? Because when I buy a garment for my wife, and when I buy a garment for my children, I give it to them. And the loan is mine, and the garments are theirs. That's the principle. Related God if I die the garment to give to my wife or my children, and the garment is already changed, it's already died, then you can't take that. That's already theirs. Even though they never wore them yet, but it's been designated to them. Or shoes, which were purchased for them. Ella, a person's spouses and children's garments are theirs. They belong to them. Now he says, you can't owe the world money. And have your wife and children walk around with expensive designer outfits. With mink coats. When does this apply? If you're talking about everyday normal garments that you buy in Sears or Target or Mervyn's Olava Sholem. But if you're talking about fancy Sabbath garments, the fancy garments that you wear on special holidays, like Cinco de Mayo, the creditor can collect them. Because who says your wife and children need to have designer garments from Nordstrom's and Bloomingdale's? What's wrong with Sears and Target? And Marshall's? I'm not sure if Marshall's is a national outfit, but here we have Marshall's. You can usually make a minion in Marshall's. Certainly, we don't have to say, if the wife and kids had rings, and gold merchandise, gold uh, stuff, ornaments, jewelry, a cassette or silver, that everything can be taken by the creditor because these are luxurious items. They're not survival items. Now comes an interesting scenario in six, six out of eight. If somebody had movable objects, a car or real estate, and he owes money, and the lender takes him to court, and the court says, show me what you got. The court says, show me the money. The lender says, listen, have pity on me. You don't get it. I have vicious idol-worshipping Gentiles who are going to kill me because they leaned these properties. You're going to take this property, I'm a dead man. All of my holdings are already leaned to these idolatrous people who are merciless. They're tough guys. Like in Newark when I grew up. They believe in concrete solutions. They bury you in concrete under the Pulaski Skyway. And if the fellow Jews will collect them in the process of their debt collection, says the borrower, have compassion, they'll arrest me. Who's going to arrest me? They come these idolaters because of their debt. I'm going to sit in prison. Would you want to put me in prison? Says the Rambam, hey, Rabbi, say, my teachers ruled, and whenever the Rambam talks about his teachers, he means, first of all, the Ri, Megosh, Rabbi Yosef of Gosh, who was the Rambam's father's teacher, and the Rambam's teacher, and his teacher, the Rip, Sha'en, Shaman, like we don't listen to this guy. The Yigbo Israel because otherwise there's no end, somebody can always say that. Let the Jewish lender collect, if the idolaters really come, the Asru, and they arrest the guy, how they call Yisrael, you have a whole Jewish people who are now obligated to redeem him. So you'll deal, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But it's not an excuse. Zion, seven out of eight. Now, my friends, we learned much earlier that when somebody makes a pledge, to the Holy Temple Fund. And he pledges all of his properties. He pledges all of his holdings. He's donating it all. Which people have done. He says you're not supposed to do it, but if people have an event, they have a situation, whatever it is, they, they feel they want to. Now the question is, what do you leave the guy and what do you not leave the guy? So we gave a detailed set of laws as to what you leave and what you don't leave before you take it to the Temple Fund. Says the Rambam, we're now going into a lot of detail again. 
Let me tell you that Mesadrin in the Lubalchev, that a debtor consideration process is similar. That Kedarshem Mesadrin Barachim, like a temple treasury pledge process. You leave certain limited items for the person, and the rest is available, is taken. Ketzad, here the Rambam enumerates, you say to the borrower, you send them a subpoena, and you say, the court says, it's not the lender that says, the court says, bring all of the movable objects that you have, everything. Don't even leave behind, even one sewing needle. You say, what's the big deal? It's a sewing needle. It weighs less than an ounce. It doesn't matter. That's for the court to decide. Bring everything you have. And then the court allocates to the borrower, 30 days of food. Every person is entitled to have food to last them for 30 days. And clothing that will last them for 12 months. Again, back then, they didn't have clothing like we have today. So 12 months of clothing does not take six closets. What kind of clothing? The clothing fit for a person of his economic category, not fancy clothing. Not that he should put on garments of silk, which was a very expensive material, especially back then, and snap as a huba or gold hats, gold ornamentated hats, ornamental hats. Those expensive garments are taken right away. And they give him inappropriate garment, which name also to last him for 12 months. So, food for 30 days, garments for 12 months. So, here we see that borrowing is not simple. You can't just ignore the lender. Lenders have rights. You leave the guy a bed to sit on. People used to sit on beds back then, like a couch. And something to sleep on a bedspread or a bed or a sleeping bag or whatever they had. If he was a pauper, so just a straw mattress and a bed to sleep on. And that's what you give him, and the rest is available to the lender. None of the above applies to his wife and children. You don't make the lender, this is an interesting law. You don't make the lender pay for this fellow's wife and children. The lender has his own wife and children. This guy's wife and children will end up without anything, they'll collect charity. This is an interesting law. Even though every man is obligated to support his wife and minor children. Yeah, but it's not the lender's obligation. You do give him his shoes, and you do give him his tillin. Because the Jew needs a pair of home. Now, can you take away his tools of the trade? Let's say he's a doctor. Can you take his stethoscope? Or his white lab coat? Or his tongue depressor? If he was a tradesman, you give him two tools of the trade of every type. So you give him two stethoscopes and two lab coats. For example, he was, as they used to say when I was a kid, a kapitner. A carpenter, a carpenter needs two awls. That's A-W-L. A-L-L is a detergent. A-W-L is a carpenter's tool. And a plane to smooth wood. What if he had one tool? Many. He had 18 stethoscopes. And only one lab coat. You could take 16 stethoscopes and leave them two. Whatever he has less than two, you don't have to buy. You don't take from the 16 stethoscopes and buy another lab coat. Not necessary. If somehow he suffices with one, he's going to be okay with one. Now, what if he says, hey, I am a eaker. I'm a farmer. I need all my farm machinery. How much is your farm machinery worth? About $300,000. But what's a farmer without farm machinery? Or I'm a donkey driver, and I need my wagon. Who, made, who manufactured your wagon, Mercedes-Benz? And my donkeys. How many donkeys do you have? I have a team of six. Who manufactured your donkeys, Mercedes-Benz? We don't give him the farm machinery. We don't give him the fancy carriage. Like Sim The chain is so old, so the guy can say, listen, I'm a sailor. What's a sailor? Not a ship. How much is your ship worth? $3 million. I can't pay the $10,000 I owe. The chain is but if he was a sailor, a shipsman, the guy does not get to keep his ship. Let him become a a sailor on somebody else's ship. The guy could sell his ship and pay back his debts. That's good. Even though he could say, what are you doing to me? You're killing me, Larry. I can only make a living from this ship or from this farm machinery or from this buggy. And These are not work utensils. These are possessions. And they are worth a lot of money. Pay your debts, mister. For your mochru, they should be sold in Shara Metalcom with the rest of the movable objects that's under court supervision. They should be given to the lender. Now, the final paragraph of this opening chapter, which gives us again building blocks. A lender comes to be repaid. The borrower is not there. Why is the borrower not there? Because he took a cruise. He's in Alaska, watching the snow-peaked mountains. But the borrower wants his money back. I'm kidding about the cruise. He went to a faraway country to make money, to survive. I don't know where he went. 
The man's wife grabbed movable objects of her husband's possessions in order that she should have ability to live. Remember, we said, yes, the husband is obligated to support his wife, but not the lender. The lender is not obligated to support the borrower's wife. The courts have a right to forcibly remove it from her and to give it to the lender. And again, this is a complex law. We're going to talk about it. It's not a simple law because it crisscrosses into marriage law. As we learned earlier, even if her husband was present, he cannot support his wife and children until he pays back his debt. So somebody cannot say, listen, I have to keep my wife supported. I own a $3 million home. I have to keep all my kids in private school. I have to keep all my kids in laptops and cell phones. I can't repay you your $600 that I owe you. It's not simple. Of course, I just drew an extreme example. So the courts have to decide what is and what isn't. So we've learned just a concluding statement. We've learned a lot of dichotomy here, a lot of crisscrossing principles. We have to lend people money. We should be generous. It's a mitzvah. You can't press the guy when he doesn't have you have to be nice. You have to cross the street. On the other hand, you've got to pay your debts. And you can't get away with murder. And you can't put your possessions somewhere else. And you can't put away your possessions because you say, I, I have an expensive trade. And you can't say, I have to support my wife and children. It's not simple. A lender is important as well. End of chapter one. Rambam Hilchais, Malva Veloiva, Perikshani. Chapter two, continuing with the laws of creditors and debtors. Halacha Aleph, Din Taira, my biblical law, original law, Shabbisman Shayit Baha Malva Eschayvai. At the time when a creditor demands his debt to be paid, when debt is due, when payment is due, if we find that the debtor the borrower has possessions, we give him consideration, which this was spoken about in chapter 1, halacha 7, that what happens when someone needs to pay, but he has no money, but he does have possessions, and he has no money, he's basically declaring bankruptcy. So we can give him consideration, which means we have him bring all his possessions to the court and make an account, and we give him his basic necessities, as detailed in uh, the first chapter, halacha Zion, basically enough food for 30 days, enough clothing for 12 months, and something to sleep on, and all the rest, he has to give the creditor in payment of his loan. And you give... The, um, the rest to the creditor. Like we explained earlier in chapter 1, what happens if we find nothing? He had zero possessions. He was completely destitute. Or all we found was things that would be given to him in consideration anyway, which means food for 30 days and clothing for 12 months, etc. So by biblical law, the loyva, the borrower, the debtor can go on his way. He is not locked up. We don't put him into prison. We don't tell him, bring proof that you're poor. Maybe you have some hidden money. Maybe you have some assets that you're not telling us about. We don't say that. We believe him. We don't even make him take an oath. In the ways that the non-Jewish people, the Gentile legal processes, whether an oath, whether the burden of proof is on him, whether we put him into prison. Because the Pasuk says, Do not behave to him, do not be to him like a creditor. We go to the, the, um, the creditor, the one who lent him the money. If you know that this one who is obligated to you has some possessions, go and grab them. If you find that he has possessions that he's not declaring, go grab them. It's okay. Or if you find out about it, you'll, you, know, you'll, you'll, you'll litigate. But we don't put the burden on the borrower. That is the um, original biblical law. And the same is halacha base, another detail. What if the creditor makes a claim that he knows he has more possessions, but he's hiding them, and they're in his home, in a safe, or wherever he's hiding them? It is not proper, it's not, it's not in his right to go into the home. The creditor can't go in, an agent, an appointee of the court, cannot either go in. Because the Torah was meticulous about this, and warned us, in the verse concerning uh, when a loan is due and um, the creditor is going to take a security from the debtor, it says he should stand outside the home and the poor person will bring out the, the security outside. So from there we learn that to collect the debt, one is not able to go into the home biblically. However, what we are able to do, we can make a general declaration, the creditor makes a general declaration in court of um, on who, whoever has possessions and is not giving them to the creditor, we give like a, a type of a ban, it's a chayrim, excommunication. He makes a declaration that whoever is hiding things and not paying back should be ostracized. In the community, and that type of declaration is a pretty scary one. So to speak, and that may that may push and compel the borrower if he has something hidden to give it up. But otherwise, according to the Torah, we, we trust them. This was the original biblical law. This is how it was done through the times of the Talmud. However, when the early geniuses, the early goyim, the goyim, the earlier generation, that uh, were right after the conclusion of the Talmud, 
And some commentaries refer to this title when we say the Omim Harishonim, the early geniuses. This specifically refers to what we know as Rabbanon Sivurai. Rabbanon Sivurai means the sages of explanations who were the sages that lived during the closure time of the Talmud and, and right after that. And there are even, in some tractates, additions in the text from them. And they enacted certain things. And this was the beginning of what we know as the Geonic period. So they saw, Shadabu Haramayim, that the liars, uh, people, uh, they were increasing situations of uh, deceitful people, of thieves. And what happened? It came to a situation that the door was locked to borrowing. People used to borrow money and weren't paying back. And this was becoming a big problem. And the uh, Jews stopped lending money to Jews because they were afraid that they wouldn't get paid back. And uh, again, like we said before, there was no way to go into the home and take things. And if there were no available assets, the, uh, the borrower would, uh, would not have to pay. <coughs> so they came and they adjusted this, the system. They enacted a few things. Number one, that in such a case where the borrower claims not to have any more assets, we make him take an oath, a strict oath, a harsh one, similar to a biblical oath, the most severe of oaths was the oath of the Torah by holding an object, which means they would hold a Torah scroll, or hold a pair of tefillin, and make an oath with Hashem's name, and this would be such a, a similar oath that he doesn't have anything else. That in this case he says, I have nothing more than what was, uh, was allocated to me. In other words, the basic things which we leave for him, for his basic necessities, food, clothing, and shelter. And, and uh, he has to also take an oath, add in this oath that he did not hide any of his possessions by other people. And that he did not give other possessions to, to other people as a gift on condition that it be returned. Which means that what this person can do technically is give away, uh, take some of his expensive possessions and give them away as a gift. And then he can take an oath legally that he doesn't owe anything because it's not his. He gave it as a gift. But he gave it as a gift on condition the person returned it. And after the case is closed, he will go get his gift returned. And he has a hidden asset, so to speak. So that is also included in this oath. In addition to this oath that he doesn't have any assets or hidden assets, he includes as follows. Anything that he will earn from now on. And everything that will come into his possession. Or his domain that he will acquire, which means he'll work, he'll make profit, he'll get a gift, whatever comes his way. He will not use it even for food for his wife and children. He will not use it to buy them clothing. He will not use it to uh, take care of them for other types of care. He will not give any gifts to anybody. He will, number one, only take from the future profits that he makes from now on. Food for himself for 30 days. And clothing for 12 months. The food that's appropriate for his status and clothing that's appropriate for his status. Not food like the gluttons. And drunks, or or princes, you know, high high class, and not garments of officers and, and royals of the court, officers of the royal court. Like has his status, whatever type of clothing he usually has, that's the type he will take for himself. And anything more than his basic needs, he will one by one, which means slowly, as the prophet comes in, he will give it little by little to pay off his debt. Until he will pay off the entire debt. That's how severe they uh, they made it. That people should trust each other to borrow money. That they would make them take an oath that all future profits would go exclusively to pay the debt. You know, complete the bankruptcy and every dollar that needs to be spent would have to be okayed, so to speak, by the by the creditor. And he can't even use it to feed his family. Obviously, the creditor agrees on something else. But by, by, by default, everything he would own from now on would belong to the creditor. And before they give this, they would administer this oath that was enacted by the early Gaonim. They would, in addition, make a declaration of, uh, of excommunication. That they would declare that anybody who knows that this debtor has assets, whether they revealed assets or hidden assets, any type of property or possessions, and he will not come and notify the court. Uh, that would be the, in other words, should be ostracized, basically. That was the declaration. We make an announcement. Anybody who knows of assets of this creditor should come right now, and if you're holding back information, you are ostracized. And that would compel people to come forward with information. Now the Ramah concludes, even after this enactment of this strict oath, that the um, debtor would have to prove that he really has nothing. Even after the oath that the creditor would swear, I meant to say, that he has nothing, the debtor would swear. The creditor still cannot go into the home of the borrower. Don't think that now that, that protection of the Torah still exists. There's no warrant for him to enter the home of the borrower, not himself, and not to be appointed by the court. The, 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 the sages did not enact to uproot the principle of the Torah. The principle of the Torah is still there. They only added a burden on the borrower to, to swear and to dedicate all his future earnings to pay the debt. Even after the enactment, if we know of more assets, the borrower has to bring them out himself. Or he should say, so and such and such I have. And the same process of giving him consideration to let go of anything that he needs for his basic necessities. Everything else should bring forward to, the, to pay the debt. And in addition, have the oath of this enactment. And so Jews litigate 
in the court system and all, wherever they may be, this has been the practice, the legal process of the Jewish community. If we happen to see the debtor has seen with money, all of a sudden he has money. After the oath, we see he has assets. Something's going on. There's, there's accounts in his name. And they make it, you know, the borrower, the court says, what's, what's this? It's not mine. I'm just holding it for somebody. Or it's an investment. It's a business investment that someone invested with me. It's not my money. In that case, here we don't accept the statement. We don't listen to him. Now the burden of proof is on him. Until he brings a proof, so to my masters, the Raman says his teachers, which many times refers to the Rimagash, also rule this way. That after the oath, now, any asset that's in his name, the burden of proof lies on him, but he must prove that it doesn't belong to him. A person takes this oath, that he doesn't own anything. Not hidden assets, not assets by other people, didn't give a gift, etc., like we explained before. The whole And as we mentioned, that he promises that everything he will earn from now on will go to pay the debt. In a case where there's more than one creditor, it's not possible, it is not the case that every one of the creditors comes and makes him take a separate oath. He owes five people money, we don't, we don't have five different cases. He will have to take only one oath that includes all the creditors. So they all have to come together to court, and we leave him whatever he's given consideration, whichever way to set up a payment for the old five, if anyone has preference, get whatever he has left, and if he has no more money, or he has nothing to begin with, he gives one oath to all five of them. What is the reason? This was enacted by the later sages, after, completely after the Talmud. As we said, because this takana, this is an enactment that came after the Talmud, and therefore, enactments after the Talmud are usually not on the strict side, on the contrary, they're on the lenient side where we can. So even enactments which are stringencies, but we always find leniency in later enactments of the sages, and in this case, they don't have to swear five times only once. Or two times, or however many creditors there are. Here comes very interesting details about this enactment of the sages that the court should administer an oath to people that are poor and don't have money to pay. So there are exclusions to this in different directions. First of all, somebody who is an established poor person. We know we know a situation, people know that he's poor, he has no money. V'chashem, and he's a decent person. He's a kosher person. He has a reputation of a that he is a wholehearted person. He's a virtuous person. This fact is known to the judge and to the majority of the community. He has a reputation, a good reputation. And a creditor comes, and he has no money to pay back because he's poor, and he wants him to take that oath, which we just learned about. And we also know that the creditor has no doubt about the poverty of this person. Just like most of the community knows it, he knows it as well. He's not really suspicious that this person has hidden money. He knows the case, but he wants him to swear anyway. Why? Because he wants him to have, he wants to pay him, he wants to make him suffer. With this oath, he wants to do this to cause him pain, and to cause him shame in public. What is the reason why he wants to cause him shame and pain? That's his form of revenge. You don't pay me back, you have bad luck, I don't care. You take the oath, so people will be, he will be embarrassed that you have to swear, you know, to my claim. Oi! Or, or perhaps when he, wants, when he will force him, compel him to make an oath, this poor person who's a kosher person doesn't want to swear. So instead of taking the oath, he will go and borrow from a non-Jew. Until now he was borrowing from a Jew without interest. And now he will have to go to pay him back and borrow from a non-Jew and possibly uninterest. So he'll push him into a more destitute situation. Or will force this poor person to take possession of his wife, his wife's things, which don't belong to him, and force his wife to give it up to pay, him, to pay the debt. So basically, pushing him into a corner. In order that he will, should not have to swear. That's what kosher people do. We know people used to avoid taking oaths. So this situation, the creditor wants him to swear because he doesn't care. He'll find the money in any other way. And he wants his money. And this will push the poor person in that direction. So if this is, seems to be the case, it seems to me, says the Rambam, it is prohibited for the judge, who is a God-fearing person, to administer this oath, to make him swear. If he made him swear, in this case, he is violating the Torah, the scripture prohibition, do not act like a creditor towards him. Because the whole enactment was from the sages, was because, as we mentioned before, because the thieves were many, and people were being deceitful, and they were lying, and they made the oath, but this person is established to be kosher, and the community knows that he's poor, and this person also knows that he's poor, so here he's only pushing him to stress him out. In this case, the judge should not make, this, make him take this oath. And not only that, even more so, it is appropriate that the judge should reprimand, scream, and uh, you know, punish him, give punishment to the creditor, because he's bearing a grudge, and he's, going, uh, he's acting recklessly, you know, by the winds of his heart, he's, he's just doing what he wants. Because the sages only enacted this oath because of the thieves, because of the ganavim, because of the liars. It says in the Pasuk, it's talking about lost objects, but it says, 
you need to keep it until your brother seeks it out, which means until the person comes and looks for his object based on certain signs. But you can also read into the verse, Adarosh Achicha, until you investigate your brother, which means which means the court should investigate if the person is a liar or not a liar. In that case, it's talking about lost object, if he's making a false claim that it says, but in this, but we apply it to the rest of the Torah, that we should find out if the person is deceitful or not. So even when the sages enacted to administer this oath, to the borrower, it was part of figuring out if he's a liar or not. But this upstanding person, we know number one that he's poor, and we know that he's not a liar. Also, says the it's prohibited to make to require him to take this off. And the same thing I also say in the other direction. Somebody who we know, a borrower that we know that he's a liar, he's a crooked person. His, his ways are, are deceitful or crooked in his business, in his dealings. And it's estimated that he does have some hidden assets somewhere. And he says, I have nothing. And he comes and he says, I really have nothing. I'm willing to swear. He's he is anxious or running to take this oath. So in this case as well, says the Raman Shein, the court should not make him take the oath. Because here you're, you're almost forcing him to say a lie. You're pushing him to lie because we know that he's not a straight person. We can assume that he's going to swear falsely. So the court should not, that, that's also who the, court, who the enactment was not made for. The enactment was made for people that may be compelled to lie or may be not so straight. So therefore the oath is going to find out the truth. But if we know that he's honest, we don't do it. And if we know that he's assumed to be a liar, we shouldn't do it either. So what should you do in that case? If the judge has the power to make him, uh, to push him, this borrower, to force him and push him to pay up his debt, or put him into excommunication, ostracize him in the community until he pays back his loan, in that case, he should do it. He should pressure the borrower. Because he's assumed to have money, because paying back a debt is a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to pay a debt. The Talmud says it, it seems to have a, a, an important mitzvah to pay a debt, and therefore, even though he's an assumed liar, so we're not going to make him swear, but the judge should apply all sorts of pressure possible in other ways to push him to pay back the debt, because that is a mitzvah. The general rule is as follows. With this rabbinic enactment about not trusting the borrower so fast. Anytime the judge will perform any of these things, the intention of the judge is to pursue the chase after justice, like it says in the Passover, because we are commanded to pursue justice. The judge has no intention to favor either one of the litigants here. And he is allowed, he has the authority to do this enactment or to adjust it, like we mentioned, either way, and he will receive his reward. As long as his actions are for the sake of heaven, he's doing it altruistically to uphold justice and not for any ulterior motives. Continuing with this oath, or this rabbinical oath, when a borrower claims not to have money to pay his loan, if someone is obligated to take this oath because of a document that's held against him, which means there's a promissory note, a loan document that says he owes money, so one that he has because it was uh, proven against him, a document was brought to court that he owes somebody money. And then, in addition to that, on his own volition, he admitted to other people, and other debts. The and now he's starting to take the oath, but now he's starting to make money, more than his food, basic food and clothing, as we mentioned before. Now he has some money, and he has a few creditors. One is with a loan document, and one that he admitted on his own, without any proof, that he owes the money. These additional creditors we admitted to cannot take any of the extra money. Only creditors that have that are in possession of documents, of a promissory note or loan document. Why? We suspect that he might have made a conspiracy with admitting to the other people that, um, on account of, of his possessions, which means that he might have gone to the other people and said, hey, I'll make a deal with you. I owe this guy a lot of money. But uh, I can't have every dollar go to him, so I'm going to make him an admission that I owe you money as well. I'll give you a little percentage. And the court will, when I make profit, will give some of the money to him and some of the money to you, and then you'll give me the kickback. Or you'll, you'll kick it back to me, so to speak, with, with a little fee. So we suspect of a uh, type of a deception. So therefore, in this type of, of agreement that's made with the court, that every profit goes to the creditor, is if there's a creditor that has a document, he is given complete precedence. Exclusivity. And only he can take the money. When he's done, then he can deal with the other ones. Here's a case where person A, Reuven, owes person B, Shimon, a hundred. The Levi, Chayel, Reuven, money. And person C, Levi, owes person A, Reuven, a hundred dollars. So the borrower who owes creditor Shimon a hundred, he's also a creditor to another debtor. Someone else owes him a hundred. So here the court, we take out the money from Levi, and we skip the middle person, and we give it directly to Shimon. This is a concept from, uh, from the Talmud, known as Shibuda de Nassan. It's, uh, it's a sage who got this idea that when person A owes person B money, but person C also owes person A, so instead of Levi, excuse me, instead of Levi paying Ruvain, and then having another claim, another case that Ruvain should pay Shimon, the court says, you should pay him directly. So we achieve both payments in one. 
therefore, in connection to our logic, if Ruben has no money to pay his debt to Shimon, his hundred, and he has a promissory note that Levi owes him money. He has proof, he has a document. So we go to Levi and we say, Levi, you gotta pay up your debt, I'm gonna give it directly to Shimon because Ruben owes him money. So Levi says, I'm sorry, this, these are not real documents. Either he says, this is a, um, it's a credit note, which means it's a, um, it's like in good faith. You know, sometimes people want to show, you know, you have to prove assets, or you have to do this, so people make up a document, I owe him money, so we can say, you know, so-and-so owes me money, but it's really in good faith, I never borrowed the money. Or Paruahu, I'm sorry, I paid that debt already, so it's not a real document. And Ruvain actually says to the court, he says, you know what, it's true, he paid me back already, so I know you found these documents by me, you know, he's supposed to display all his assets, and that he owes me money, and you want to go after him to pay my debt, he should pay my debt for me, to Shimon, but you can't, because he says it was paid, and I agree, he paid it, or it's not a real document, it's only a document of good faith. In this case as well, we don't. It's value. His claim has no value. We don't uh, look at it on his admission. Over here also, maybe there's a conspiracy. Because they want to make Shimon lose, lose his rights. In other words, they made up with each other that we're going to say that this never happened. Uh, so Shimon should not be able to, to, to demand his loan directly from Levi, from Levi. So what should you do? In this case, Shimon has to take an oath. He has to take an oath that Ruben owes the money. The creditor has to swear. And in that case, we told me Levi. And then we don't believe that the document is fake. We believe that it's actually a true document. And he can go take his loan back, payment directly from Levi. In this case, we will apply the regular law of anyone who wants to uh, take demand property from somebody else, that you cannot take anything owed without a oath. Because here, we have a problem with the documents in question, so he must swear, and then he can take payment from Levi. The same would apply to anyone who has against him a promissory note, which means there's a loan document that he owes somebody money. And then he also admits owing money to another person on his own initiative. So he has now two creditors, but he doesn't have enough money for both. He will only, only the one who has the document, the promissory note, can demand payment because otherwise we're afraid that he actually is admission of owning money to, some, owning money to someone else. It's just a conspiracy that he wants uh, to take away some of the assets, hold back some of the assets of payment, so he's making up that he owes someone else money. This is the concept we mentioned before, and this will apply in all cases. So it's not only in a case where, where, as we mentioned before, there's a very poor person who's taking an oath, and then every future profit he makes goes to the, goes to the borrower, but in general, without a poor person, a regular person who, who just doesn't have enough money, he has money now, but not enough to pay both debts. So we don't consider them equal creditors. One who has a document has exclusivity, but gets the loan paid first. It is forbidden to a person to lend money without witnesses. Even to a Torah sage. Which is incredible. We'll see why. Every loan should have witnesses attached to the loan. Have two people watch it, record it, unless he gave him a loan on collateral. If he gave him a loan on collateral, so there's proof to the loan. The best way to do it is with a note, an IOU note, a document. So to, to lend money without witnesses is prohibited. Unless there's collateral. And the third way, which is the best way, is with a document. Someone violates this and lends money without witnesses. Oh, he varies, transgresses. He transgresses the prohibition of placing a stumble block in front of the blind. Because he might cause someone else to, to violate something. Because people get busy and people forget. And even the Torah sage was busy learning. And he's going to forget about the loan. He doesn't remember. You're going to come make a claim. You say, I lent you money five months ago. Where's the payment? Because I don't remember. I don't think, I think you're making it up. So you're, you're causing other people to refute a claim that's true because you didn't even care to write it down in a document or witnesses or that you have collateral. Now, collateral... There could be a problem because you give him a watch that's worth a thousand dollars, and the loan was only five hundred, and you'll say you owe me a thousand. I'll say I think it was five or four. They'll argue, argue on the amount, but he won't, won't be able to deny the loan at all. But if you don't have any witnesses and no documents, and he'll have to deny it if he doesn't remember, and you're causing him to stumble. Also, in addition, the great and kolol alatzma, you're bringing a curse upon yourself. Why? Because people will say, Ah, look at this guy, look at this sh- crook. He's making claims against the Torah sage. Torah sage is denying it, and people are going to badmouth him that he's making false claims in court. And in order to uh, to avoid that, we should write down things by document or witnesses, at least collateral. Halacha and then he freed him, which we're talking about a non-Jewish slave. Or he borrowed money from his uh, wife, and then he um, he divorced her. Ain't all of Klum. They have no claim against him. So if he borrowed while from a slave during slavery, during his wife, during the marriage, he owes them nothing. After they got divorced. Shekol mashikana evakana rabbi because the law is that everything that a servant acquires automatically is transferred to his master. Any money that a woman has in her possession is assumed to be owned and belong also to her husband. Unless she has proof that that money was from her dowry, her dowry belongs to her as we learned in the laws of marriage. So if that's the money he borrowed, he doesn't have to pay back even after they get divorced. But if they just borrowed money that was available in, in her possession, we always assume that money, there's no such thing as a woman exclusively owes, owns her money, and therefore it was his money as well. So he never really borrowed it from her, and therefore she has no claim against him if they got divorced. Unless it was part of the dowry, and that remains hers.
Rambam Hilchas Malva the Loyva Perik Shlishi the third chapter of the laws of lender and borrower. Halach Aleph Almana a widow Ben Shehiyani or Ben Shehiyashira whether she is poor or wealthy Ain Nemashkin Oisa collateral a deposit cannot be taken on a loan Loy B'Shasalva Veloy Shaloy B'Shasalva whether it was during at the time of the loan or whether not at the time of the loan meaning sometimes when a person borrows money immediately at the transaction gives a collateral deposit an item that the lender can have as a security. And sometimes it's given on his own volition afterwards, and sometimes a mashkin is given at the end of the loan, when the loan comes due, and he doesn't have money, he says, you know, why don't you hold this object of mine until I can come up with the money, or the court will order a security deposit, a type of a mashkin, something that the lender can hold on to. So if she's a widow, you can't do any of that. Veloyati based in and not even on the order of the court. Shenemar, as it says in the verse, You cannot take, as a collateral, a garment of a widow. And this, by the Rambam's explanation, excludes all type of deposits on a loan under any condition. It should be noted that the, some argue, the Ravid, comments on the Rambam, and he makes a difference. He says, no, when she gave it on her own volition during the time of the loan, then it's not a problem. That's allowed. Only if it's after the loan, or when the loan, after the loan was given already, when the loan came due, then it's an embarrassment for a widow and other reasons, we cannot do it. But again, the Rambam is one of the only authorities that holds otherwise, and he claims that it's prohibited under any circumstance. The Imchaval, if we take such a collateral, we force him to return it. The Imchaval, and if she admits the debt, how is he going to get his debt paid? The Shalin, she can pay it. If she will deny the debt, Tishaba, she can swear. By the way, one can go to the court if she has no cash or money, and as we learned in the previous chapters, you can get uh, her possessions, you can, take, uh, you can take her items from her home and use it as payment for the debt. That can be done by the court. What cannot be done is a mashkain, a collateral or a deposit on account until she pays the loan. If he took the collateral or the deposit which was not allowed to, he violated the Torah's prohibition, and it got lost or it got burnt before he returned it. Loika, he was punished by lashes. Because this is a prohibition that now he violated and cannot correct. Because it's gone. And so to anyone who lends money to anyone, to his colleague. Whether he gave him the loan in exchange for the collateral, immediately during the transaction. Whether he took the collateral after the loan was given, beyond whether he took it himself. Whether he took it by order of the court, usually when the loan is due, when the court gave him an order and he took the collateral. So here the Torah gives a special um, prohibition of what is not allowed to be taken as collateral. One is not allowed to take collateral things that are used to make food. For instance, mill, millstones, flour, and a type of a... Um, a wooden bowl or a trough that you use to make dough, the or pots that you cook with them, the sack and or a knife that's used for slaughtering, and such things. So anything that's used in food preparation is not allowed to be taken as a collateral. Shinamar says in the verse, nefesh don't take as collateral because you're taking a life. What does it mean you're taking a life? You're not taking a life. So we learn in the Talmud that you're taking something that helps make food, which is for life. Obviously, there are also other restrictions, which we learn later about basic necessities of food and clothing. But here we're talking about things that are not food and clothing, so anything that's preparing food in preparation is also not allowed to be taken. If he took it without being allowed to, Masib al-Karti is forced to return it. If it was lost like before, and it's not consumed by a fire, Kaidim Shayasa before he returns it, like he will be punished by lashes. And just um, to make a note that in this case as well, the Ravid disagrees, and he says that a loan, a collateral that's given at the time of the loan, you can take and use things that are prepared to uh, make food. You're allowed to take a pot if it was given at the time of the loan. But again, um, the Rambam holds his ruling that under any circumstances can these items not be taken as a collateral, any type of a collateral. Another note to be mentioned that as payment, one is allowed to take this. We learned in the previous chapter, and in chapter 1, Allah 7, that when someone doesn't have money to pay a loan, you consider certain things and everything else will be taken as payment. So such items as pots and pans and bowls and millstones can be taken as payment. But as collateral and a security deposit, they cannot be taken. Allah Gimel, Chaval Kalim Harvish, Leichel Nefesh. If I guess he was owed a lot of money, so he took as collateral many items that prepare food. He took as collateral a trough, a bowl, and a pot, and a knife. He is liable for every single item that he took individually. Every single item is another violation. 
Even if you took two utensils, which combined together only perform one type of work. So technically it's like a pair or a team. It's two parts of a, of a mechanism. You're violating and you're liable for two and lashes for taking two separate items. And you will be liable twice for lashes. Where do we know this from? Because it says in the verse, You should not take as collateral. Is two expressions of, uh, of the millstone. Rechaim is the upper millstone, Rachav is the lower millstone, and the Torah specifies the two, even though you need both, and just say don't take the mill. The Torah specifies them individually, to make one liable on the upper stone separately and the lower stone separately. Just like the upper stone and lower stone are individuals, they're two separate items, utensils, but together they are paired up and make one work. The Torah holds one liable separately for this one and for that one. So two, all any two items, two utensils, even though they serve the same purpose, the same work, he's liable on this one separately and on the other one separately. The same thing if he will take as collateral uh, a yoke that's placed on oxen to plow. He's liable for two because the yoke is made out of two parts and uh, only together can they plow. But nevertheless, because it's two separate um, uh, items, he will, he will be liable for two separate times of lashes. One who gives a loan to a colleague, whether poor or rich, should not take a collateral himself, only through the court. We'll see soon the, what this means. Is it all the time or uh, there is exceptions? Even a agent of the court, an appointee of the court, Shabbat Lamashkin, which comes with the order of the court to collect the security. He cannot go into his house and take the collateral. He must stand outside. The borrower should go into his home, and he will bring out the collateral from the home. Because it says in the verse, You shall stand outside. So the Rabbim says, What is the difference between the, um, the borrower, the lender, the creditor, or the agent of the court? If it's, uh, it's exactly the same, says, no, it's not the same. The agent of the court can take the collateral from the borrower and give it to the lender, even by force. He can't go into his house. But let's say he finds a loiver on the street, and he sees him carrying some item in his hand, and that can be used as collateral. So the appointee of the court can grab it from the, from the uh, borrower and give it to the creditor as a collateral. And on the other hand, the, um, the lender cannot take the, the security, cannot take the deposit, unless only if the borrower gives it to him on his own, on his, willingly gives it to him. So um, what we said, that's what we said before, that if, uh, if you're in the beginning of the halacha, you must go to the court. Obviously, that's talking about that the lender does not want to give it. So then he goes to the court, and the court will get it. But um, by court order, the, or the creditor himself cannot grab it. Only the agent of the court can grab it. If he violated, the creditor violated, and he went into the home of the borrower and took the collateral, or he grabbed the mashkin of his hand by force outside somewhere, he does not get lashes, although he violated the biblical prohibition. Why not? Why doesn't he get punished? Because immediately it could be corrected. The Torah put the positive commandment right next to the negative commandment. You can correct it. It says, Surely you shall return the collateral when the sun comes. Which means, sometimes it means sundown, sometimes it means sunset, depending on what type of collateral it is, we'll see later. But you can give it back. Basically, if he took the collateral, Without permission, when he wasn't allowed to, he can correct it by giving it back. So there's no lashes. Being like he how about if he never returned it, and he can't return it anymore? You're going to show up that and that lost or that consumed by fire or that burned. Like that, then he will get lashes because now he can't return it anymore. So he completely violated the prohibition. And not only that, that he get lashes on the hashem He also loses the value of the mashkain. He has to calculate the value of the, of the collateral, which they are and he can go and only take the rest of the loan by filing a claim or posting a claim at the court. So if the loan was a thousand dollars and the collateral was worth five hundred, he took it without permission and it burnt up in a fire or got lost. Now he loses that five hundred of the account and he can only claim the rest of the five hundred. One who takes collateral from his friend, whether through the court or he took it himself, he personally takes it, as we said, by order of the court or the loan, the, the um, or the um, the the borrower gave it to him on his own volition, by force or by volition. In ish so a typical case of the collateral, if the borrower is poor, he took an article as collateral that he needs to use it. It's a basic necessity. It is a positive commandment to give him back the collateral, the utensil, when he needs it, for instance. He must return the pillow at night so he should be able to sleep on it. Which means, if he took the pillow as a collateral, when the sun goes down, he must return it before the sun goes down so he can sleep on it at night and the next morning he can take it back. If he took the plow as a collateral, he must return it in the morning or before the morning so he should be able to use it by day. 
Shanaman says in the verse, Hashem Tashim Leisavit. Surely return, you shall return the the collateral. So usually things that take us collateral are either a basic necessity by day or a basic necessity at night. And whichever one it is, you have to keep it for half the time and return it for half the time. Because there are some basic necessities which we will learn that you can't even take as collateral. The bed, for instance, you can't even take. Clothing that you wear, you can't even take. So usually things that are easily needed, needed by day or at night. Not sure what would be the case if you would take a car and a car you would claim needs it by day and by night. So what should you do then? I guess they have to come to some agreement. What if he violated and he didn't return to him the vessel of the day by day and the utensil of the night at night? He violates not only the positive commandment but also the negative commandment. Like it says, do not sleep with his collateral. Do not sleep and his collateral is still by you. This is a garment or something, a covering that he needs for the night and you slept with it and you shouldn't have and that's a violation. If these are articles that he needs to do work with them by day or an extra garment that he needs to wear by day, until the coming of the sun, you must give it back to him. Which simply could be translated until before sunrise, you must give it back to him, so it should be by him all day, and the that you must return it to him throughout the day. I guess we learn one from the other, and therefore my monitor said that you the Rambam said that you are violating a negative commandment even with a day garment or a day machine. Although the literal prohibition says you should not sleep at night with his garment, but it refers to the same it, it refers to the inverse as well, that when it says you must give it back to him before sunrise, the other one that he uses by day would also be violating the negative commandment if he doesn't give it back to him for the day. Now the Rambam asks a technical question. If so, in Kano, if that's the case, that you must always keep changing it back, giving it back, taking it back, giving it back, taking it back. They must return the collateral at the time when he needs it. I take it back when he doesn't need it. What is the purpose of having a collateral? Collateral means I hold on to it until you pay it alone. Here I have to release it every 12 hours. I'm sorry, every 24 hours for 12 hours. What's the point? So he says there are two benefits. One, so the loan should not be expired in the sabbatical year. We know that by biblical law, every time the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year arrives, the loans are, are, are nullified. However, a loan that one has taken collateral, it does not look nullified. So uh, because he has collateral on the loan already, it will not be nullified by the Shemitah year. So uh, even though he has to return it, it doesn't matter whose possession it is because it was already designated as collateral, the loan will not be nullified. Another benefit, the collateral will not become property, movable property by the children if he dies. He will still be able to take payment from the collateral if the borrower died. When a borrower dies, all his possessions transfer to the children. When possession transfer to the children, it becomes difficult to claim a loan from uh, the children's possession, from movable possession. You can go after, after, um, after the estate. However, in this case, because he had taken the collateral by day or attack, whichever one it is, so it does not even transfer the estate. It remains still as it is by the original owner, and the creditor will be able to pay his loan back immediately from that collateral. If the movable property is part of the estate, then he doesn't automatically have a lien against them. One has a lien against the non-movable, against land, against real estate of an estate. But movable property becomes more difficult to, uh, to challenge the heirs and collect it in court versus the collateral is already considered that he has a hold on it and he can pay back. So that's the benefit. Hold on, Here you learn as follows. Have we learned? Conclusion is, Someone of the collateral from a poor person, something that he actually uses, and did not return it in the time when he needs to use it day or night. He violates three commandments. One, the first, not to come to his house. Remember there was a prohibition. You're not allowed to go into the borrower's house to take the collateral. And in this case, by holding it back, is as if he took it for, takes, as if he's taking it from him by force, which remember we said that the, the, the creditor cannot take it by force from the borrower, only the agent of the court can. So here he's holding it by force, as if he's taking it by force. So he violated that commandment, as if he went into the borrower's home and took it. He violates the positive commandment of surely you shall return the collateral because he didn't return it. And then he also violates the negative commandment, do not sleep with the poor man's collateral that he needed at night. And as we said, it also implies do not keep the collateral for the entire day if you need it by day. So he violated three sins. All this, all the above, which we just said, the long halacha, five, all the exclusions of what you can take as collateral. I'm sorry, how you have to return the daytime and the nighttime collaterals that you take. All this applies only on a collateral that was taken not at the time of the loan, it was taken after the loan was given already, or at the end of the loan, the time was up. If you took something from a poor person at the time of the loan, you do not have to return it at all. You do not violate anything, because in this case, the Torah does not prohibit you to take something, even if he needs to use it by day and night, but because of his own volition, he gave it at the beginning of the time of the loan, is he was showing that this is an item that he won't need to be using, therefore he agreed to give it to you in the onset, in the beginning of the loan, so therefore this does not go under any of the prohibitions and the commandments of giving back a collateral to the poor man when he needs to use it. The agent of the court that comes to take a collateral from the borrower, 
He cannot take articles that a person can't give away as collateral, which means basic things that he needs. Going for instance, bagat shalom, the garment that he's actually wearing, he can't take it. Uklisha echoboy, utensils that he's eating, plates, forks, spoons, these things you cannot take. Uminiach mito matzalasher, he as well cannot take a bed and a mattress from the rich person. Umito matzalani, he must leave over also a bed and a straw mat, a straw mattress for the poor person. Anything that he finds in the house besides these things, eating utensils, obviously food he can't take, but uh, a garment that he's wearing and a bed, anything else, yeshalom ashkenah, he can take as collateral. What if he saw two of the same? He had two of the same. Two gowns, two garments, two, two pillows, as we said before. He should not take both. If he has two of a particular article, he can only take one, and, um, and he has to give the other one back. How long does this transaction have to happen? Take it, give it, take it, give it, take it, give it, give it forever. There's another option. He can go to court. He wants his money. He doesn't want the item. But if he's getting sick of returning it back and forth, he can go to court and make a claim and ask to use as payment, and then he keeps it as a payment. That's fine. You know, anything which we learned about, that you can take as payment from the borrower. But if he wants to hold it as collateral to eventually get money, then he has to keep returning it. What if the collateral was something that he doesn't need to use, and we don't leave it by the borrower, which means he can keep it until he pays back the loan? How long do you need to wait for the borrower to come up with the money? What is the criteria? You can leave it to him until 30 days. You can leave it him for a month, and after 30 days, he goes to the court, and they can sell the collateral and take the money. If the borrower died, you don't have to give, keep giving it back to the, to the children, even though it's an item that they need to use by day or at night. You don't have to give it back to them because it wasn't taken from them, so it's not, it doesn't apply to them. What happens if the borrower died during the time when he gave back the collateral? Right? It, was a, it was a night item, and he gave it back to him to use at night, and that's when he died. So now, uh, how does he get it? We said it's not part of the estate. He can actually grab it off or pull it away from the children, and does not return it, and he keeps it, as we learned, to get payment from his loan. A guarantor. The creditor, what we learned before, they cannot take a collateral by force from the borrower. That's from the borrower. But what if it was a guarantor, a cosigner, and the borrower had the money, now he's going after the cosigner. From him, he can take a collateral by force. He can enter his house and take collateral. Because it says in the verse, in Proverbs 2016, you can take his garment because he guaranteed it to the stranger. In practical halacha, there's a difference in this case as well between an orev and an orev kablon. A guarantor, a typical guarantor, which you go after him if the borrower doesn't have money, or an orev kablon, which means a cosigner that allows the creditor in the beginning to choose to go after him if he wants without even going after the borrower. In that case, all the restrictions of the borrower apply to the guarantor as well. But here we're talking about a regular guarantor. If you only go after him if the borrower is not available anymore, doesn't have money, then to the guarantor, there are no restrictions. You can go in and take it by force. It doesn't have to you know, apply the restrictions. As well as someone who doesn't have a loan. It's not, it's not that he um, owes money because he took a loan. But someone owes him money for rent, for payment. Someone owes him wages. He worked for somebody who didn't pay. He rented his animal. He owes him money for rent, for, for, for hiring of the animal. He, he, he borrowed someone's utensils to work with him. He owes him to hire the rent. Rent, typical rent, rent of living space. So here... He's not a borrower, there's no borrower and a lender, but there is a creditor, you know, the, the employee is owed money. So here, it is a mutual mashkanish If someone owes you money for rent or for payment, not a loan, but for payment for work, etc., you don't need to go to court, you can go into his home and take it by force of so basically, you go to the person's house, he can take a collateral until the person will pay him his wages. The guy had no money, he came to me and said, look, I don't have the money, let's turn this into a loan. Let's make a payment plan. And they transfer it instead of just payment, now it becomes a loan. In that case, also, then if it becomes a loan, automatically all restrictions of a loan apply, you cannot take the collateral by force, you have to go to court, etc. Because it says in the verse, when you extend a loan, of any type to your friend, you cannot take a collateral. So because it says a loan of any type, it's obviously including any type of loan, even if originally it was a, it owed money for payment and then it was turned into a loan, that's also included in any type of loan. However, if it was not a loan at all, it's just owed money because of a payment, because of a purchase or something like that, or, uh, or owed money for wages, then that doesn't fall under the, the prohibitions of, uh, of, of uh, borrowing of a loan, and you can go into his home and take the collateral. Final, a person who is already holding a collateral deposit a security item of a poor person. So it's sitting by him now. So now it's just sitting until the poor person will pay money, so it's not doing any good for anybody. If the reward if the, the fees of the item is greater than its depreciation, which means maybe you can rent it out, and of course when it's used, it depreciates a little bit, but the fee for rent is greater than, than the depreciation value, so some money could be made here. A saw or a hatchet, an axe, 